This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. This is the Work and Life podcast, which explores how to create harmony among the different parts of life, work, home, community, and the private self, your mind, body, and spirit. Here's your host, founding director of Wharton's Work-Life Integration Project and author of the bestseller, Total Leadership, Professor Stu Friedman. Emily Oster is professor of economics at Brown University and a mom of two. She's written two parents' guides to the chaos and frequent misinformation that often occurs in the early years of parenthood. She addresses and often debunks myths on breastfeeding, sleep training, language acquisition, the impact of parents' employment on children, and more. In both her books, Crib Sheet, A Data-Driven Guide to Better, More Relaxed Parenting from Birth to Preschool, and Expecting Better, Why the Conventional Pregnancy Wisdom is Wrong and What You Really Need to Know, she aims to create a world of more relaxed, pregnant women and parents. This is a laudable goal that I certainly share. Emily holds a PhD in economics from Harvard University. And in this episode, we talk about the state of the research on parenting and how much of it can result in one-size-fits-all recommendations that may not be accurate or useful for individual children, parents, and families. In describing the source of her inspiration for her books on parenting, Emily explains her journey from her first pregnancy through her current situation raising two children and how the medical recommendations she received were not as helpful as she'd hoped. Using the skills and methods from her training as an economist, she assessed the state of the research literature to help herself and others. With the exception of vaccinations, where the research is crystal clear that they are a good idea, she found that for most other parenting decisions, the answer is essentially, it depends. So, the upshot, do what's right for you and your family, but learn to ask the right questions. Her books help you to do that. In today's high-pressure environment, her reasoned, evidence-based approach is a bomb for young families and those who care about them. Well, I hope you like the Work and Life podcast, and if you do, I would so much appreciate it if you would rate and review it on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts, so others are more likely to find it and uh, enjoy it as well. So now, without further ado, get set to listen to and learn from economist Emily Oster about what really works for parents striving to do the right thing. Emily, welcome to Work and Life. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to have a conversation. Well, it's great to have you here. So um, my guess is that when you received your doctorate in economics from Harvard, that you might not have imagined writing not one, but two popular books about parenting. Maybe you did have that in mind. I, I'm eager to learn about that. I'm, but the, the real question here is what inspired you to write Crib Sheet and Expecting Better? Is it because both your parents were economic, uh, economists and somehow you were inspired by their parenting or was it something else? Uh, so I, as you, I definitely did not uh, leave Harvard imagining I would, I would do this. Um, it's sort of, sort of somewhat of a weird thing to do um, as an academic. Mm-hmm. Uh, but really what happened is I got pregnant with my, my older kid who is now eight, mm-hmm. uh, and I found myself pretty, um, pretty frustrated with the way that my interactions with the sort of medical establishment were going. Hmm. Um, and, and I found myself basically doing a lot of the kinds of things that I did at work um, at home. So actually using a lot of the tools of economics, both the data analysis, uh, data curation tools, but also a lot of the you know, decision-making tools that, that we use. I found myself using a lot of those in the service of my pregnancy. That's, and, that's an, a, a 
an interesting point just to underscore that you took what you knew from your professional life and applied it to the challenges that you were facing in your home life, which is an important idea, one that we try to promulgate here on this show in a lot of different ways to, to help people realize that they have assets and skills and connections and ways of seeing the world in different parts of their lives that can make sense and be used in the other parts. So. Yeah. Yeah. No, and I, I think for a lot of, I mean, I think for a lot of women, you you sort of come into this. You have a job at your job. You're you're thinking carefully about all of your decisions, and you're you're kind of thinking about costs and, and benefits. And then you get uh, into something like pregnancy or, or parenting, and there's just kind of like a total evaporation of expectations that you'll use those same skills. But of course, hmm. you know, there's a reason you use those skills at your at your job. And and you know, particularly for me, um, I I really do a lot of these, I answer a lot of these kinds of questions uh, in my in my work. And so it was natural to, to bring it into my life. And I think it probably is not unrelated to the fact that my husband is an economist and my parents are both economists. And so I, I am used to the idea that your household would be a place where economics uh, reigns supreme. And yet the, you know, the questions that you're addressing are those that are typically addressed by people who are trained in medicine or psychology or sociology. So so how do you sort of bridge that gap, you know, to the extent that it's there from, you know, your training and your worldview as an economist to the to the world of uh, pregnancy and, and parenthood? So, I mean, I think a lot of the um, – it is kind of two pieces – particularly in the more recent book about parenting, there's kind of two pieces to the way the, the book is it kind of works out. So one is really a piece about decision-making. And I actually think economics, relative to many of these other disciplines, is really focused on decision-making and the idea that you would, you know, have some data, but then you would have some preferences and you would weigh your costs and benefits. And so there I think the, the economics is kind of the core discipline. When you go into the question of what kind of data are you using to to make these choices and what are the relevant studies, it's definitely right that you know me- medicine is most of the studies I use come from medical mm-hmm. journals. But again, you know the the idea of using data to get a causality. I mean that's something that we all do. Sure. I, economists do, med- people in medicine do, and so I, I'm not sure that the skills are so disparate, even if the topics are kind of disparate. So. What was it that was frustrating to you when, you know, in terms of what you encountered in the, you know, available evidence or, or, or the, you know, the advice and guidance that you were getting from 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 doctors and, and others? Like what was missing or causing you to think, you know, I can, I can there's more for me to find out here that I can use and make better decisions? Yeah, I think for me the biggest, um, there were, because the biggest thing, um, or the basically two biggest things, were one, you know, in a lot of the kind of advice you get, it's really given in a one-size-fits-all kind of way. Mm-hmm. And that's true for both pregnancy advice and for, for parenting advice. You know, everyone should do this or everyone should not do this. And there are, of course, some things where that is the right advice. Um, but there are many more things in both spheres where actually it's more complicated than that. You know, people should the right decision isn't the same for every person and mm-hmm. for every family. And, and a lot of these recommendations don't really recognize those differences. And so I think that was a big, um, that was a big piece. And I think the second big piece is that in a lot of the data that gets presented around pregnancy and parenting, there, there isn't enough confronting of the fact that we see a lot of correlations that are not causal. Mm-hmm. And, you know, economists are really, like I would say uh, obsessed is a good word. Economists are really obsessed with causality. Uh, and we think a lot about, you know, how can you learn about causal relationships in observational data, in the kinds of data that we typically have in these questions. And so those, those skills in sorting through which of the papers about a topic like breastfeeding, you know, which of them really show you the effects of breastfeeding and which are, are kind of not something we should learn from. I think that's, that's a place where, where I, I spend a lot of my economics training. Yeah, and it's useful uh, and kind of depressing to the extent that you conclude, as you, I think, often do, that 
you know, the, the, the quality of the evidence is such that you can't really rely on the, on the extant literature, you know, the available, the available studies. And, uh, and that, uh, you know, that, that sort of is freeing to the extent that you are then um, left to understand that your situation is unique as a, as a parent, as an expecting parent. And that you really have to find solutions that work in your case. So yeah, that's at least how I kind of read Crib Sheet. Is that, a, is that an accurate read or not? Yeah, I think so. So I think particularly for Crib Sheet, when you look into these decisions about early parenting, you know, there are a few places where the evidence is really clear, like in vaccinations, where it's really clear that you should vaccinate your, your kid. But in most of the most of the places that we look you know, either the data is is pretty limited. And so in a sense, it's like you have to use your judgment or there is some data and we can learn something, Mm -hmm. but the data actually doesn't tell you what the answer is. It just, (laughs) it it helps you frame the decision and tells you, you know, what's, what's beneficial about this. What's, you know, what are the costs, but it it isn't like, okay, it's so clear that there's benefits or it's so clear that it's really bad that you either should do it or shouldn't do it. It's really uh, much more, it's more nuanced than that. Right. Right. I think that is, I mean, I think that is freeing. Some people have told me, well, this book just says, you know, that you should do whatever you want. And I think it doesn't <laughs> quite, it doesn't quite say that, but I think it hopefully helps people think about how to, how to frame sort of what they want or the th- the ways that they want to parent, how to frame that inside. What does the evidence say about those, those choices? Yeah. Just because the evidence is uh, ambiguous as to, you know, the direct causal connections or, um, you know, fuzzy as to you know what might work in your particular situation doesn't uh, you know take away from the value that you create in helping people to uh, ask the right questions. Yeah, and that's that's a big part of of, of what the contribution is, I think, in, in Cripsheet, and that's really useful. I hope so. Yeah, um, I mean, I, I've been teaching at Wharton for thirty five years now, and I think that my main contribution. Um, to the extent that I've made one, is in, is in helping people to ask questions that they hadn't asked themselves before without necessarily providing specific guidance or answers, although I do occasionally do that. So I, I think that's a real service, and, and I applaud you for it. Um, now, I, uh, I have kids who are in their 20s and 30s, and I can tell you that when uh, I told my eldest that you were going to be on the show, he said, well, all my friends, uh, you know, rely on Emily Oster as as their guide now. And I, wow, that's I, you probably already know this, Emily. So I'm not, and I'm not trying to butter you up. I'm just giving you some data here uh, that 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 is true. And this, you know, he's uh, he's a smart kid, and he hangs out with a lot of other smart people. And uh, so you're you're making an impact. What I find so really interesting about um. The uh, you know the desire that people have for your work and others like it is um, that there's a, a real craving for data driven science. Yeah. Um, you know, back in the day, which is to say, like you know, when I was just raising kids with my wife, or my parents were raising us. It was Doctor Spock. It was Barry Brazelton. It were the other you know wise. People who had a lot of, you know, clinical experience who were drawing wisdom from that experience and sharing it in practical ways with, you know, the people who were really hungry uh, for that knowledge. What's new today that makes your approach so relevant? Yeah, I, I, so it's interesting. I mean, I, so first of all, thank, tell your, tell your son thank you. That's I will. very nice. Um, you know, I, I think I hit uh, a good moment in people's desire for data, um, which was lucky and great. Uh, but, you know, I, I do think that there, we are, I thought a lot about this question, and I'm not sure I've quite come up with an answer. I think part of it is as the, like, age of childbearing has gone up, mm-hmm. uh, you know, people are used to, people have worked for longer, they're used to, to, they've sort of done more things in their life. And I think that, that, sometimes parenting feels like, okay, this is the next step, like the next thing I need to achieve. And, you know, I achieved college and I achieved a job and now I'm going to achieve parenting. And for all of these other things, I like put a lot of work into it. Like, and not, I didn't just sort of 
do whatever people said. I like I thought about it. I got data. I wrote a paper or whatever it is. And so I think that there is a there's at least a, a group of people where where it kind of feels like okay, I, I should be approaching my parenting in the same mm-hmm. in the same manner. Um, and particularly because data has become such a, a buzzword and evidence based everything. Everything, everything, exactly. Evidence-based everything. Uh, people want to evidence-base their their parenting too, um, which I'm, of course, supportive of. It's a good and thing. That's part of my. That's part of my thing. I think what's what's complicated about it, um, and where maybe the books are are a little helpful, is it can be actually quite hard to to sort through. Yes. What does the evidence really say? Um, and you know, I think that's that's kind of where the books came in to help people who want to do that but are faced with a, like a sort of morass of poorly curated evidence mm-hmm. that they're trying to that they're trying to sort through. So a lot of people do write to me and they say, you know, I'm so glad I found your book because I started doing your book, but it was taking too much time. Yeah. And you know, and I wasn't like I wasn't quite sure where to look and so but I think there are a bunch there are many people who sort of started to try this approach on their own. Yeah, and they needed a, an expert social scientist who could do the literature review and make sense of it. So um, I did a, a research study a few years back comparing the attitudes and aspirations of the class of 1992 graduating from Morton uh, undergrad to the class of 2012. So this was a longitudinal intergenerational study. And one of the questions in that research was about plans for having children. Uh, do you plan to have or adopt children? Yes, probably, not sure, probably not, and no were the response alternatives. And in 1992, 79% of men and women said yes. In 2012, 42% said yes. So that, so that, became, wow. the, that became the focus. Right, it's exactly what I said when I saw that result, and I thought, no, nah, I can't be right, that's, but it's yeah, right. Yeah, it seems like it's like my, your RA entered something. We coded it wrong. That, that would, that's what that would feel like. Yeah, that's, I thought it was, a, it was an error. Uh, in the data, but it, it was true, and of course, uh, and it probably doesn't really surprise you, given what you know you've probably come to discover about the you know the demography of child rearing, child bearing, child rearing, and as you said earlier, it's it's coming later, but many many fewer people, uh, men and women, are are choosing to to go the route of becoming parents, and it, the story is different for men and for women, and that's what we described in this book called Baby Bust. Which turns out to be a really bad title for a book. <laughs> anyway, anyway, I bring this up because I did a you know a bunch of talks when the book came out uh, with students and other groups, and uh, you know I'd ask them to talk about the implications of this finding. And one of the things that I heard that really struck me was um, people saying that they were shying away from becoming parents. I hadn't seen this in the data, but in the conversations about it, I heard. Because they were afraid of being judged harshly for screwing it up, that there was this performance anxiety, and I'm wondering if that's related in some way to the craving that people have for you know science. That you know, there's a sense of um, you know, if I mess it up, that I'm a bad person, and my parents are going to be angry with me, and uh, you know, th- there's just so much uh, of a stress on uh, achievement, as you put it earlier. What do you think about that? That's I so it's super interesting. I, I do think that a lot of um that, you know, being being a parent, sort of looking at it from the outside, it seems pretty stressful. I don't know whether it seems more stressful than it would once, but I think you know, particularly in the space of people who kind of like are in the uh, whatever, in the space of people who are going to Wharton presumably, you sort of look at the world and it's like, Well, you have a kid and you know, it's gonna it's gonna mean that everyone's like, what you know, what extracurriculures have you engaged in? You know, what like is your why isn't your kid playing chess? Like they oh you didn't sign them up for chess? They, mm-hmm. they, they don't know how to. They, what do you mean they don't know how to play chess? You know, and it's I think I can see looking at that from the outside and seeing you know like I'm not sure I want to sign up for that. A lot of pressure for that pressure, yeah, for that for for that ex- experience. Um, you know, people write about these sort of like all joy and and no fun that like having a kid is not. Mm-hmm. That, you know, people don't find it to be enjoyable in the in the moment, even though, of course, like, you, you know, you say that you love um, you love your kids. And I and I do think particularly early parenting can feel like a kind of endless array of of kind of doing it wrong. 
um, you know, mm. and, and almost every day you're just like, oh, they did that wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, it's worse if other people tell you you're doing it wrong. But honestly, like most of us, you know, you, you kind of think yourself that you're doing it wrong some of the time. Yeah. No, that's um, my point, that I think that there's this internal sense of uh, you know, pressure or, you know, fear of, of failing that is keeping at least some people from even entering the fray. Yeah. No, and I think it's, it's – uh, I think that's not – I, in some ways, some of the message of of the the, the book is like you know you're yeah I, like all of these many choices many different choices are fine and almost no choice is the probably no choice is the choice that's going to make or break you know your kid's success as a as a person so you can kind of take a little bit of that pressure off. Um, well, a lot. Uh, I think that a lot of them. I mean, at a meta level, you know, if you get if you step up from the specific findings that you describe in each super helpful chapter that has a great bottom line summary at the end, the the overarching message is, you know, you're you're not likely to screw it up, you know, if you're paying attention and if you're thinking yeah. about the things that matter and and you care. That's no, I mean, I always so I sort of think about it. I, I give a bunch of book talks and somebody at, at one of them asked, you know, she said, like, we're trying to, you know, I'm not like we're, I'm, my husband and I are trying to decide we really only have an, like enough resources to pay for private school, uh-huh. either when our kid is younger or when they're in high school. And we've been thinking a lot about, you know, what is exactly the right set of you know years to do to do this for? And like, you know, what is the answer to that? And wow. I was like, honestly, the fact that you're thinking about it means that it doesn't matter. You should just pick the thing that is going to you know, be more convenient for your for your family. But like you're already there because you have already you are already a person who is spending your time like budgeting out, you know, what is the best situation you can put your kid in. And like that's that that already is is that's that's the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And so these these sort of decisions on the margin are not are not going to be the most important thing. The important thing is that you're. Is, is that you're thinking about it and that you're you're kind of invested in your in your kid. Yes, that you care. You're paying that attention. You you're asking these questions. All right, well, that is not to say that you know I'm uninterested in some of the specific findings in your in your studies. I, I do want to get no, into sure. them. Sure, I mean I look. I and they're useful. <laughs> but I think you know I'm glad we started with this overarching point. Um, so w- one of the things that you know is just so important in our society today is the question of who does what with respect to men's and women's roles uh, in all aspects of our social life. What what did you find? You, you do devote a chapter to the home front um, and to, what is it, internal politics? Internal politics, yeah. yes. What's what's the upshot of your, your take on the on the literature on that topic? So you know, as I, I wrote this chapter about the question of you know, does do, do you hate your husband after kids, which is sort of the the like you know in a clickbaity version of these. Why didn't these I see that? The, you know, why didn't <laughs> That's that? a Freudian yeah, oversight. Never mind. Please continue. Um, and so, uh, so I think you know, I think when you look at the data, it is it is true that marital satisfaction declines mm-hmm. uh, on when you have kids, and you can kind of I mean, for people who have seen who have had kids. It is not super surprising to to find that you know having kids is is it is stressful. I think even if you even putting aside these these sort of particular stresses of like wanting your kids to to achieve in some in some way, it's it's you know people are tired. You're not sleeping a lot. Mm-hmm. The baby's crying. Um, you know the first year of of parenting is pretty overwhelming. Uh, just and physically. You just exactly physically. I mean you know you wouldn't like you probably wouldn't be as excited with your spouse. If you just somebody, if it had nothing to do with baby, and somebody just woke you up with like an air horn at three o'clock in the morning every night, mm-hmm. that would not make you like them more. Um, so you know, I, you do see these these declines. They, there is some recovery, and I, I think that the evidence says that these declines are are less bad if you plan the baby, if you if you were happy in your marriage um, before, mm-hmm. which are all kinds of things that make um, that make sense. And and you know, then you have a sense of control or agency or choice in the matter. Yeah. Uh, exactly. Um, and then I think the other, uh, you know, the, the, we can go a little bit into sort of like what are some ways that, that people have thought about what is some evidence for how you might fix some of these problems or make this better. And I think the, the main thing that comes out there is just um, the idea that you should have some regular, you know, not 
like every two weeks, but like every six months or every year, like some marital check-in discussion uh, in which you talk about kind of the, the allocation of tasks. Um, and so I think one of the things that that does, and I've talked to a lot of people about like having this conversation, mm-hmm. is that it makes you recognize what the other person is doing. Yes. And it's super salient to you, the things that you are doing. And it's easy for both people in the marriage to feel like they're doing everything. Uh, Not realizing and, how important and how detailed that trash detail is. Exactly. Correct, I, Emily? I, I, exactly. I talk about how my husband does the trash, and actually the trash is like a many-step process yeah. involving like some kind of something called diatomaceous earth, which like you have to put in the trash cans, otherwise you get these like flies. Uh, which I don't, I don't like. So you know, it was. I mean, that very impressive. It was. It's an massive props to your husband for all that trash system, and it's really <laughs> nicely done, and it always goes out. But I think you know, it was one of those moments for me where I was like, oh, actually, you know, I, I, I kind of think like, oh, I, you know, I do all these, I do all these things, and but you know, there are and the things that he does are just like you know trivial, but actually, like it is, you know, it is because of him that the trash goes out and it is because of him that there's toilet paper in the bathrooms because I would never do that and I never replace the toilet paper. Wow. You know, we've been, we, my husband is always telling my daughter, like, you know, I've been, I've been like involved with your mother for 17 years and she has never replaced the toilet paper roll. I think that's probably true. Yikes. That's probably, probably right. Well, now we're getting into it. That's why you get married, then someone else does things for you. Complimentary <laughs> skills. That's what exactly. makes for a great team, Emily. Exactly. Yeah. And then my well, skills, of course, have deteriorated. Now I'm not even sure I could do it. What, what's the point of trying, really? Well, if you if you can trust and rely on your partner to exactly. serve that capacity, then exactly. you don't need to bother yourself with that. Totally correct. So what would you say is like the, the bottom line, you know, the upshot of, you know, checking in you know, it would seem an obvious thing to do, would it not? I think it is, but I don't. I think just because it's obvious doesn't necessarily mean that people do it. True. Um, you know, because it's one. It's like I think there's a difference between talking to your spouse and 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 really sort of consciously sitting down and saying, okay, like let's actually talk about like how things are going. Mm-hmm. Like because in some ways, like that's an uncomfortable conversation. But obviously, a conversation you want to have because. Some of the time your spouse is going to say, well, you know, things are okay, but here are some things that I'm not happy with. Right. And, you know, maybe you don't, you kind of just want to go along as if everything is great, but of course, like... It's never perfect. It's never perfect, and, and it, it, is, uh, it is easy when you have kids to, to forget that there's a, that there's a marriage um, that you, you know, are going to have hopefully after the kids are not as, as central to your, mm-hmm. to your everyday. Um, yeah, I think... You know, it's it's profoundly simple and really useful to remind people that uh, it's it's essential to have ongoing conversation at whatever frequency you know makes sense for you about mutual expectations and needs and what you can be doing to to better meet them, if not simply to just understand what those are, even if you're you know daunted by the prospect of trying to meet them, you know, and, and yeah. you can't it, just knowing it. So I th- I think that's that's a very useful idea, uh, simple and obvious as it might seem, uh, because it uh, you know it's common sense that might not be well practiced. So I'm, I'm I was really glad to see that, and I think listeners uh, hopefully are benefiting from hearing about that. So about stay at home versus stay at work, uh, in in. What you've concluded about those choices, um, what what's your take on yeah. what you were able to glean from the literature and your own experience? Uh, so, I mean, the first thing to say is this: I think this is among the more fraught uh, topics in in early parenting because I, the way I talk about it in the book is that this is, in some ways, it feels like it shapes like the, the kind of parent that you're going to be. Like, what like what is your day going to look like? Are you going to be with your kid all day, or mm-hmm. are you going to be at your at your job all day, and so I think that partly because it's it's such a shaping thing, it feels like it's the, sort of a very important choice. And there is like to be fair, a lot of judgment on both going in both directions. Um, I am a person who has a job, and so I certainly feel mm-hmm. the I feel the judgment in one direction, but I I can see that I know that people feel it in the other one also. It's the mommy wars. It's the mommy wars. I think it's the in some ways it's the sort of crux of the the mommy wars. It's the biggest thing. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so, you know, 
as a result, a lot of the discussion about it seems to focus on like, well, what's the best thing for your kid? You know, I'm doing this because it's the best for my, uh, for my, for my kid. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, when you look at the data, uh, there just isn't simply is not any evidence that either of these things is better or worse for your kid. So there is a little bit of evidence that some some evidence, actually good evidence, that some maternity leave is good. So sort of taking some time in the first, taking a couple of months, a few months at the beginning, that that's that that is beneficial. But then if you're going to sort of push beyond that, which is I think a lot of what people are asking about, you know, go, staying home for a year or two years or ten years. Uh, not all the data is great, but the, the data that we have really does not suggest that there's any difference uh, across kids in their outcomes as a result of this. In terms of maternal in, employment on child outcomes. Yeah. That, like, if you look at, like, our kids whose moms stay home, or are, do they have better test scores? Do they have less behavior problems? You just don't see any evidence of that in either, in either direction. Mm-hmm. Um, so in some ways, I think that, that may be the most freeing thing in the, the, like the most freeing conclusion in the book. Because it really says, like, okay, so actually all the stuff that you're thinking about, you know, what should I do? Should I stay home? Should I go to work? What's the best thing for my kid? It actually doesn't really matter for your kid which thing you do. And so you should make this decision based on what works for your family. And that has a bunch of considerations, you know, what works for your budget, financial, like there's some very important financial considerations. It also is worth asking what you want to do. Uh, which is something I think a surprisingly few parents actually sit down to think about. So, you know, do, do you want to have a job uh, or not? Hmm. Um, and that, that actually should play. It's sort of crazy to say that, that to have to say, like, whether you want to do this should play a role. Um, but I, I don't think that everybody thinks about that. To the extent uh, that you have a choice. There are many people, yeah, of course, who don't. Have a of course. So, again, like, and I think that that's, uh, there, there's a, this part of this whole, all of these discussions that kind of presume that, that you have a set, of, a set of choices, and I think many people don't. But if you do have a choice, um, you know, it is still, I think it's worth thinking about what, you know, what is, what is the thing that's going to make you happy? Yeah, and and fulfill and, and feel good about yourself because that's, of course, going to have an effect on your children. Exactly. Now, uh, my take on, on that literature is, is the same, uh, that maternal employment, um, as I looked at it, does not, does not have uh, a causal connection that I could discern on, the, on child outcomes. But what we were able to do in, in a couple of studies here was to look at the conditions of work, not just the fact of employment, but uh, how much control or autonomy you have, for example. And and there, what we found was that to the extent that women felt uh, that they had a sense of control over their lives at work and you know, had agency and decision-making about important aspects of their life at work, that that uh, bared favorably on their, ch- uh, their kids' outcomes. So I think part of the... Uh, and, and perhaps you were not focused on that aspect in, in your review, but one of the things that, because there's really not that much research on this, but I think digging below the surface of simply looking at whether you are employed and, and further at, well, what kind of job are you in? How do you feel in that job? How does it affect your ability to have freedom to you know, control your schedule, for example? That does seem to matter. And I think that's related to a, a sort of broader set of issues that, you know, parental happiness is actually pretty important uh, for the family. Um, and, you know, one of the things that determines how happy the parents are, you know, how happy are they at their jobs if they're uh, if they're working. And there's, you know, there's other aspects that where you know, mental health of, of the parents yeah. is affected by the by the choices. And I, I don't think that we we talk enough about that or think enough about you know, what are the ways that um, that we can help parents be, be happier? So what advice then uh, comes from that line of thinking with respect to, you know, choices about employment and how people should be thinking about it? Yeah. So, I mean, I think one, you know, for people who choose to work, I think you're, you're right that like it can, um, that for, for many, for many of us, there's, uh, that it that there's a strong desire to be able to combine our family and our and our jobs in a way that works for for both of them, and I think mm-hmm. that 
uh, that workplaces are not always great uh, at at recognizing the the needs of parents after the first few months. So, you know, even in a you know even in a place with good maternity leave policy, we have all kinds of firms which are pushing, you know, towards having great maternity leave, and I think that's awesome. And there should be generally the U.S. should have more paid leave. Yes, uh, we, we spent everybody. a lot of time on that topic on this show, as you can imagine. Please continue. Super important. Uh, that is super important. But even in a place with like four months of paid leave, then, you know, you're back at work, but your baby didn't like disappear, right? Like you still have a baby and then you have a child. And for for many people, it is really important to be able to be engaged with their with their kids and to see, you know, to see their kids every of course. day. And, and I, I think that that workplaces are not always great at at kind of making parenting seem like something that you know we're all doing, um, and so I, I've just talked to a lot of people about the particularly a lot of women about the idea that they need to they feel like they need to hide like to hide being a parent. The at, plague at of secret job. parenting the you, you of write about. Yeah, yeah. So that, what do you learn? What did you discover there, and and what advice comes from that? So so there I you know I I just I t- that is based not on data. Well, there is some data, but partially on data, partially on just talking to people and hearing people's stories about, mm-hmm. you know, I hid my pregnancy until I was like, you know, eight and a half months basically in the delivery room. And, you know, I never talk about my kids at work. People will tell me, like, I've never mentioned my kids at work. I don't have any pictures of them. Like, I never talk about needing to to go do things uh, with them. You know, people who say, like, I, you know, I call in sick and tell, say that I'm sick instead of saying my kid's sick because I don't want people to perceive me as, you know, someone who would like take a day off to take deal with a sick kid. This is mothers though, right? Not fathers. This is, this is mothers. Yeah. So I think it's this is different. It's different because I think it is, you know, true and unfortunate that, you know, if a dad says, well, I'm taking a day off to be with my sick kid, people are like, oh, what a cool guy. What a good dad. What yes. A good dad, you know, and the mom takes off. He's like, oh, again, you mm-hmm. know, can't, can't you get it together? Uh, and, and so I think, you know, we, it would be, one of the things, what I argue in that piece is that we need to make parenting a more normal part of making, we need to make it a more normal part of how we think about organizing work and, uh, and that there, there may be a place for more flex scheduling, more, you know, acknowledgement of these kind of constraints, not to say that, you know, people who are parents shouldn't have to work as hard, Mm -hmm. um, but, but really even just recognizing timing constraints. So, you know, for me, like, actually, we're doing this interview at 6 o'clock in the evening. It's actually pretty unusual for me to do something at 6 uh, because, you know, I like to have dinner with my kids. Yes. Um, and I often will just say, like, I'm sorry, I don't do I do not do things at uh, – I don't do things between 5 and 8. Right. Uh, like, I just don't do work stuff except, you know, on rare occasions between those hours because I want to be with my kids. I'm feeling guilty now, Emily. No, no, you shouldn't feel guilty. I actually, I, I, I needed a break. I took them to the dentist this afternoon. Oh, like, okay, then you're like, welcome. My, yeah, exactly. So I was like, oh, I'm sorry. I took. Oh, I got to do. I got to do the radio interview. Sorry, that's. Uh, they're having a good time. My husband. My husband likes to get KFC. That's like his. It's like the treat when they have dinner with dad. They get. They get fast food. So they're all. Everyone's very pleased. To get what? Um, to get KFC. Kentucky KFC. KFC. Got it. KFC. Okay. Yeah. So there's a uh, unintended plug there's for a, a KFC. Best. Yeah. I don't eat. I don't eat <laughs> fast food. So it's like you know, I don't. But anyway, where was? Anyway, okay. no, we were anyway, talking about the the plague uh, of secret parenting. Yeah. And, so and, I, I think people just need to be a little. I think I, I sort of say there like that. This is something that the this is a change that has to come. From uh, from organizations and from the top mm. and from people who are uh, who are more senior, saying both men and women, but men men also saying, you know, yes, I'm a parent and here are the things that I'm doing with my kid, and yes, I'm going to my kid's baseball game, and you know, that's uh, that's what I'm you know that's what I'm doing today, and that's why I'm not here, as opposed to saying like our kids are some kind of like shameful secret that we're hiding. So. What what's uh, what's the most uh, helpful thing that you've heard or that you have learned about what women especially can do to uh, to sort of be out about the fact that they are indeed mothers? So I think people have shown me a lot of pictures of their office, uh, which I think are where, where like people have their kids their kids stuff up, which I think is uh, is really good. Um, you know, I think the other. Uh, I think being being clear about the gaps in in scheduling and you know times that you're not uh, available because of parenting, 
um, I think is also like a, a pretty important um, a pretty important piece of uh, piece of this. And the other thing is just like talk like talking about your your kids. Um, so I talk about my kids all the time, probably more than is strictly necessary. Um, and you know, but I do that especially around junior people because I want them to understand that like that's mm-hmm. that's okay. And you know that that is that is not something that I'm gonna. You know, I mean, I'm not going to judge you if you tell me that you, you know, have have a baby and you're an assistant professor. I'm not going to be like, oh, I can't believe you would do that. Don't you care about your job? Right. So certainly those who are in positions of responsibility and power and authority can do a lot to change cultural norms at work to enable people to feel good and free about their lives beyond work, particularly as parents. Um, But if you're... You know, if you're 30 and you're having your first child and you're concerned about being seen as, you know, less than ideal, you know, fully committed employee um, and you're in an industry where, well, you know, that that sort of norm prevails that, you know, you need to be available, you know, 24-7, 365, what, what do you suggest based on what you have discovered about this topic? You know, I think that's a really hard question. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I, uh, I think that's really hard because I think that the truth it is very hard to change things from that, mm-hmm. uh, you know, from that angle. And you know, I, I had, you know, when I had my first kid, I was an assistant professor in a place that was not super into family stuff, and I, mm-hmm. you know, I came back really fast. Uh, and I didn't really talk that much about, uh, about my kids. And I think, you know, I was lucky in the sense that I'm still an academic. So I was still, you know, not like, you know, being in an investment bank, um, or in one of these like more FaceTime oriented, mm-hmm. uh, oriented jobs. Um, you know, I think there is a, there is a piece that, that I would say, you know, you got to think about how you, you know, is there a way to make the job work for you? Uh, and, you know, maybe, like, maybe that means having a different job. Uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, th- I think one of the things that, that I worry a lot about happening, particularly to women in jobs like that, is that you kind of go, go, go until you just quit. And that women basically go, like, they just, they hold on to these jobs and then it's just, it's just untenable. Like, you cannot, right. you, you know, you have, it's like, what I've never seen, I haven't seen my kid in a, in a week and I just can't do that. And then people just decide, instead, I will have no job. Right. And, um, that, and I'm that's... not sure that's always the thing that's really going to make them happy, no. as opposed to, you know, trying to think before you get to the, like, forget it, I'm quitting forever. You know, think about, is there a way to make this job work for me? Is there a way to make a yeah. different kind of, you know, is there a different job that I need to, that, that I need to have? Um, and I think that's, it's, I think some of the, some of the sort of high-skilled workforce female dropout is this sort of, like, just I, I just can't I just can't make it work and and by the time you get to the point of realizing that it's almost like it's just it's just too much you have to stop too late to negotiate, an, late alternative, to negotiate an alternative right exactly. uh, which is and and that of course can mean a loss for everyone the employer you know the employee the family uh, so once again the upshot as I take it is more you know conscious you know, mindful decision-making earlier about, well, what is it that I need? What is it that I want? Where where, and in what ways can my career, my work life serve to, you know, nourish me as a mother at, yeah. or as a father? Yeah, and I also think this is, I mean, I you know, sort of putting my, like, previous business school professor hat on, it seems like such a waste for firms. Of that course. You have people who work for you for all this time, and then it's like they're they're just they're gone as opposed to saying you know what like i we're going to give you the opportunity to like work in a slightly different way for the next you know 6 years i mean your mm-hmm. kids are not going to be little for 25 years you know but you could have someone working for you for that long yes and you you've lost all that you know firm specific human capital all of that investment yep. because you couldn't you know let somebody go home at 5 o'clock for for a few years so they could see their kids that seems like a waste Right. And, you know, it is changing, uh, fortunately, but it's changing slowly. You know, you compare the U.S. to other nations and you see how how primitive our systems are for supporting parents. 
Uh, I spoke recently to Caitlin Collins. I'm not sure if you're familiar with her research, but she's done some remarkable cross-national studies of uh, mothers. And one of the things that she observes is that uh, what makes American mothers different than mothers in different parts of Europe uh, is that the attribution for responsibility for everything going right or wrong is the mother herself as opposed to you know, the, the society and the system, the you know, systemic support surrounding her. It's, it's only here that mm-hmm. mothers feel bad, like they're screwing up if things aren't working. Um, do you have any observations or thoughts about what we ought to be doing, what we can be doing to change our society on that score? No. <laughs> All right. Uh, yep. Honestly, I mean, I think I think it's right that although I, you know, I think there are, there are other places where there's where there's some some of this kind of j- judgment also, but I think you're, it's certainly right that that you know the U.S. seems like we're pretty much an outlier on this kind of like it's the it's the latest fault that all anything is uh, is is happening. But you know, I think part of what happens is it gets kind of internalized into into moms, um, into how we think about this on our exactly ourselves. Mm-hmm. And so that's that's particularly I mean that's like particularly hard to change because it's uh, every we're all adopting the same uh, the same kinds of kinds of assumptions. And I think, you know, they're really I mean, they're really—it's really damaging because the truth is, like, things do go wrong. Uh, they go wrong with your kids. You know, sometimes your kids—they go wrong in little ways, in big ways, and uh, a lot of that is just, you know, random uh, and out of out of our control. But it ends up that, you know, women women blame themselves a lot, right? And that's, uh, you know, that's that's really bad. But that's more common here in the United States than it is in other countries where there is much more support from from society, from the government, for, for mothers, particularly new mothers and fathers, including and especially with respect to family medical leave. But also, uh, as I know you know, the... Um, you know, just having like somebody actually help you, especially if you're a first-time mom. Here's what you need to know. Here's what you need to deal with. We don't have that. No. No, I remember. I mean, I remember so vividly, like, coming home with my daughter and just, like, walking in the door and putting down the car seat and just being like, okay, that's it. Like, it's going to wake up. And then I'm, I'm, now I have this, this baby and, like, I have no idea what I'm doing. And, you know, I, of course, am a person – I had, like, a tremendous number of resources and a lot of ways yes. to find out what I'm doing and a supportive partner and all kinds of other things, and it's still super overwhelming. Yeah. Uh, and in most of these other – you know, many other countries, you know, somebody's – you know that, like, in two days, like, or a day, like, some nurse is going to show up at your house and, like, help you figure out what you're doing. And, and here we just kind of, like, abandon people. Right. Um, and which is crazy. It is. It is. And I'm glad we're getting to this. You know, what's, what's the most important lesson you've learned f- about your work from, from being a parent? Oh, my God. Um, you know, I, ugh, about my work from being a yeah. parent? I, I, don't, I don't really know. I mean, I think that the work has hugely influenced my, my parenting and the work on parenting has hugely influenced my academic work. Uh, but but mostly in sort of how I think about evidence um, and uh, and data, I think the biggest lesson in my life that I take from parenting yes. is just that you don't have the control that you know I don't have the control that I think that I do, mm-hmm. um, and that that has been a hard lesson about being a parent. And it's it, when I learn that lesson at work, it's also hard. <laughs> uh, and so I've tried to I've tried to kind of like let it go a little bit uh, and, yes. and accept that I can't control what happens to my kids and not, I can't always control what happens at my job either. Right. A little more Zen. <laughs> a little more Zen. It is not my main, not my main strength. <laughs> uh, so a question I've been asking everybody this year and the year of what I'm hoping is a year of accountability. How do you hold yourself accountable for the things that matter most to you? Um, you know, I try I guess I try to be reflective on them. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, the things that matter most to me are just that are my, is my relationship with my kids. Uh, And I think a lot about that, particularly with my daughter, who's now, you know, going to be, she's eight. And so, you know, she's going to be a preteen. She's more of a a person. 
uh, and a you know a person with more opinions and and necessarily there's you know more more conflict and I I try very hard I've been trying mm-hmm. very hard lately to really sort of step back and make sure that I'm I'm dealing with her in a way that is respectful um, and that I'm accountable for the interactions that we have. Thank you for that. And thank you for your great work, Emily. Where can people find out more about what you're up to these days? Uh, you, can, uh, you can find me at Brown University. You can find the books on Amazon. Wonderful. Emily Oster, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much. I hope you found my conversation with Emily Oster to be eye-opening and that it provided some relief. Whether you're a working parent or have working parents as your direct reports or have working parents in your family. What Emily has found is that with the exception of vaccinations, for which the evidence is clear, vaccinations are unequivocally good, most decisions are best left to parents who can make smart choices based on asking the right questions, gathering relevant data about their individual situation, and addressing those particular circumstances. There's so much good material in her wonderful book, Crib Sheet, but let me just focus here on one piece. If you're a parent and are raising children with a spouse or partner, here is a challenge for you, an invitation. Why not try doing a marital check-in about how you allocate responsibilities and about your mutual needs with the intent of discovering more about what it's really like for the other person, how you can be helpful to each other, reduce the chances of parental and relationship burnout, be a better parent, and perhaps benefit your career as well. If you try this or something like it, I would love to hear what you discover. So you can just get in touch with me directly at friedman at wharton.upenn.edu or find me on LinkedIn. Thanks for listening to this episode of Work and Life. This conversation was originally recorded on my weekly radio show on Sirius XM 132, Wharton Business Radio. Tune in for live broadcasts of Work and Life on Tuesdays at 6 p.m. Eastern. For more about this episode's guest and about previous guests, visit workandlifepodcast.com. And for more ideas and tools for creating harmony among the different parts of life, check out our website, totalleadership.org, and my book, Total Leadership. Be a better leader, have a richer life. If you like this podcast, please subscribe, rate it on iTunes, and share it with your friends family, and co-workers. Until next time, I'm your host, Stu Friedman, and I thank you for joining me. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.